You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around and let me know what you want. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Try it out of the time! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the liar! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I hiked a mountain like an idiot and then fell asleep in the sun later that day because I have missed the sun so much. And it was the first time that like the sun was out. I had nothing to do because for the last like month, the only day the sun was out and it was warm were days I recorded, which felt very cruel. So I was very excited to be in the sun so much that my body just went and nap time. But yeah, it seems that at long last... Spring has come to Los Angeles, which is just crazy because I think this is the first time we actually had like a winter since I lived here. Anyway, uh, no movies this week as or movie reviews this week, rather, as I'm recording this super early on Wednesday morning. So like three days after last week's episode came out, not even because my sister's bachelorette is this weekend. I've been nicely asked not to bring recording equipment with me. So uh, I have to do this super early. I woke up, crawled out of bed, sat in front of this microphone, <sighs> but I am going to edit it while I'm there. So, yeah. With that in mind, let's just hop into uh, this week's topic. This week, we cover the Sex Pistols and the film that gave us a look at punk rock's Romeo and Juliet, Sid and Nancy. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. The Sex Pistols formed out of the band The Strand, which was formed in 1972 by school chums Steve Jones and Paul Cook. Several of their friends would rotate through the band over the next several years. Quote-unquote disillusioned by the progressive rock and hippie music scene of the era, as well as politics and all that lovely stuff, the fledgling punk rock band took their musical inspirations from the 1960s mod movement and the rock and roll stylings of The Who and The Small Faces. However, it wouldn't be until 1975 and the arrival of John Lydon, better known as Johnny Rotten, that the band would take off to a whole new level. Steve Jones had spotted Johnny, who looked, quote, a little different, in a clothing store run by their, quote-unquote, manager. He was hard to miss. The 19-year-old had jagged green hair and a homemade I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt with the eyes of that band's members scratched out and the shirt held together with safety pins. Reports vary a little bit at this point as to what exactly happened next, but the gist of all of those stories was that that same day or shortly after, somebody close to the band asked Johnny to come to a nearby pub one evening to meet Steve and Paul. 
When the pub closed, the group moved to another location where Johnny was convinced to improvise along to a song on the jukebox. Turned out to essentially be his audition for the band. While Johnny sounded nothing like a songbird, his improv skills and personality and tone of voice were perfect for a punk band. He was in. The band also settled on their new name around this time, Sex Pistols, no the, a shortened form of the name they had apparently been working under unofficially at this point, though sources do vary on this. With their unique look and sound and shiny new frontman, the Sex Pistols riled up or angered people everywhere they seemed to go. It was unusual for the band to have to literally fight their way back to their van after being fired mid-set. However, they soon started to amass a following of like-minded individuals, some of whom were later nicknamed the Bromley Contingent. So it was basically like, you know, you've got your Swifties, you got your little monsters, like that kind of a situation before, you know. But for the most part, everywhere the Sex Pistols would play, the majority of the audience was just not vibing with them. The consensus of the majority of this part of their audience was that Johnny couldn't sing and they all looked weird and or bad. Either way, their appearances yielded strong opinions on both sides of the spectrum, and wasn't that what punk was all about? Somehow, <laughs> the band got the attention of the record companies, mostly thanks to their ambition, but also with the help of Malcolm McLaren, their manager who also found them their current bassist. And the band found themselves signed by EMI for £40,000 on October 8th, 1976. At this point, the band's lineup consisted of Johnny on vocals, Steve on guitar, Paul Cook as the drummer, and Glenn Matlock on bass. Johnny's new song, Anarchy in the UK, was set to be the band's debut single, a song that baffled mainstream music press upon its release on November 26, 1976. December 1976 changed the course of the Sex Pistols' career and the music scene forever, but of course they couldn't know that at the time. After last week's group, Queen, had to cancel their appearance at the last minute, EMI booked the Sex Pistols to appear on the Today TV show hosted by Bill Grundy. Turns out both Grundy and his interviewees, who'd shown up with a full entourage, were all incredibly under the influence. Grundy treated the Sex Pistols and company with very thinly veiled contempt, and he managed to get the punks to start swearing. Problem with that, and allegedly unbeknownst to the band, this show was currently being broadcast live throughout London. The following day, the Sex Pistols were headline news up and down the country. Punk rock, as it had been christened, had officially reached the masses. December 1976 was also when an 18-year-old Pennsylvania girl named Nancy Spungen and a 21-year-old named Sid Vicious met the young girl's first night in the country. Soon after meeting, the two moved in together. Both Sid and Nancy had strong drug dependencies and a 19-month relationship of extreme toxic enabling ensued. The two were known for having frequent arguments, which often led to physical abuse on both parties' sides. There was the drug abuse and self-harm. Both Sid and Nancy struggled with mental health issues, and their behavior often escalated when they were under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. In January 1977, EMI had buckled to mounting external and internal pressure against the band and dropped them from the label. But the band got their full £40,000 contract for their trouble. By this point, tensions between Glenn and Johnny came to a boiling point. I'm sure getting dropped by the label didn't help. 
Glenn was a more classic rock and roll musician, which he wanted to implement more into the band, while Johnny was anything but and wanted anything but. Glenn officially left by quote-unquote mutual consent in February 1977. Since Steve and Paul had been friends since they were conceivably kids, Johnny saw this new vacancy as a chance to balance things out by bringing in his old friend John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious. Sid already got along with Steve and Paul and fit the band's image better than the milder Glenn. Sid was also one of the earliest Sex Pistols fans and could not wait to join, despite the pesky issue of him not being able to play the bass. But if Johnny couldn't sing, screw it. Why not have a bass player who couldn't play bass? The Sex Pistols soon found themselves at A&M Records, and their next single was planned to be the song God Save the Queen. However, after a drunken celebration at the A&M offices, the band soon found themselves without a record deal yet again. Only 10 days after they'd signed to A&M, the Sex Pistols were fired, but 75,000 pounds richer in the process as A&M also paid out the contract to just get rid of them. The next record company to take a chance on the four punks was Richard Branson's Virgin Records, who signed them in May 1977, just in time for the Queen's Silver Jubilee. If you know their music and have good short-term memory because I already said the name of the song, you probably know which song they released. Yep, the release of God Save the Queen in May 1977 sent shockwaves up and down the country, which was embroiled in royal fever. In an era before the public at large knew far too much about the monarchy, no one had ever spoken up so publicly about them. Like their concerts, the public reaction was mixed and polarizing. On the I absolutely hate this side of things, there were members of Parliament who called for the band to be hung at London's Traitor's Gate. Vintage. Dig it. The single did incredibly well, and even though it technically outsold the number one record of the week, The First Cut is the Deepest by Rod Stewart, God Save the Queen peaked at number two during the Queen's Silver Jubilee. The powers that be refused to formally acknowledge the fact that the Sex Pistols had the number one song in the country. Undeterred by this slight, as well as a couple of public scuffles because of the song's backlash, the Sex Pistols went on to release several hit singles, which culminated in their only official album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Pre-release orders were so high for this record that it immediately debuted at number one on the charts, obviously. Despite things, you know, seemingly going in their favor at last, internal bickering in and around the band had reached its apex around this time, so why not go and travel together? A U.S. tour was planned for January 1978. Though at first that looked dicey because the band were initially refused entry to the States because of their criminal records, but they managed to convince immigration to let them in, missing only two shows in the process. The stress of touring, along with the mixture of infighting, which their manager was doing nothing to quell, was coming to a head. Sid's ever-increasing drug problem, which now included heroin, did not help tensions either. As things got worse, seemingly by the hour, everything spiraled out of control during their final gig in San Francisco on January 14th, 1978. Johnny was sick with the flu, Sid was on drugs, and the other two were just full ass over it. Johnny left the band the next day on his own volition after trying in vain to get Steve to fire McLaren, again their manager. The Sex Pistols were no more. 
After the band's breakup, Sid and Nancy moved to the Chelsea Hotel in New York City. Sid made a an attempt at a solo career, and the two hit as rock bottom as you can get not long after. On October 12, 1978, the 20-year-old Nancy was found murdered in their hotel room. Sid was the only other person in the room, and therefore the main and only suspect. Whether he did it or not is a highly debatable topic to this day. He claimed not to remember what happened, which, you know, they were on drugs, so not surprising. And Sid would never get a chance to clear his name as he fatally overdosed on February 2nd, 1979, most likely by accident, a day after he was released on bail. He was 21 years old. Just a half decade or so after the deaths of Sid and Nancy, plans were announced to make a film about the band. The film, originally titled Love Kills, would be based largely on the ill-fated relationship of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen. Sid's mother, Anne Beverly, initially tried to prevent the film from being made, but after meeting with director Alex Cox, she decided to assist in the production, even giving the actor who would play her son the actual heavy chain and padlock that completed Sid's look to wear in the film. Speaking of who was going to play Sid, Cox had originally wanted Daniel Day-Lewis for the part, (laughs) I can't even imagine that, but changed his mind after seeing actor Gary Oldman perform in a 1984 production of The Pope's Wedding. Oldman turned down the role twice before accepting it because he wasn't familiar with the punk scene of the previous decade and he didn't connect with the version of the script he'd been given. He was also a little bit concerned about the length of time that had lapsed between the death of of these two people. It had only been like five years, which is not a significant amount of time. So, you know, I can I can respect that. Oldman did change his mind, however, based on the salary he was about to be offered. This was at the beginning of his career. So, you know, getting paid movie money gotta be gotta be a tempting offer and also you know the urging of his agent who got 10 percent. so not surprising so oldman was on board and if you know him at all he's a little bit method especially back in his younger days and the actor ended up losing so much weight to play the rail thin sid which he did by eating quote nothing but steamed fish and lots of melon and was briefly hospitalized when he lost the weight too fast So don't eat fish and lots of melon. That's not a solid diet, unsurprisingly. Oldman would also later dismiss the quality of this performance, saying, quote, I don't think I played Sid Vicious very well, which agree to disagree because it's what made me a fan of his work. So when it came to Nancy, Courtney Love auditioned for the role and Cox was impressed by her audition, but would later state that the film's investors didn't want her. They wanted a more experienced actress. Love was given the role of Gretchen instead, which was written for her by Cox, and the character was one of Sid and Nancy's New York junkie friends. So to skip a step there, several of the people around the band were made up for the film. They were not they were not real people. Chloe Webb, who had appeared in several small television roles at the time, was instead cast as Nancy. If you've never seen this film, she's the non-Margot Martindale woman who worked in Sandra Bullock's shop in Practical Magic, the one who kind of looks like Cindy Lauper. That's that's Chloe Webb. I, I wish I had a more updated piece of her work off the top of my head, but alas, I do not. Upon the film's release in November 1986, the film was well-received by critics, but didn't do great at the box office at the time. It was a very, 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 very tiny little indie thing, which, you know, to this day, those don't tend to do well unless it's like in everything everywhere all at once and it, you know, hitches an audience. But through the years, it has gotten quite a lot of acclaim specifically for Oldman's performance. 
But not everyone was happy with the content of the film, specifically and unsurprisingly Johnny Rotten himself, who was furious at how he was portrayed within the film. Johnny further laid out his involvement in the film in his 1994 memoir, Rotten, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Quote, the only time Alex Cox made any approach toward me was when he sent the chap who was playing me over to New York where I was. This actor told me he wanted to talk about the script. During the two days he was there, he told me that the film had already been completed. The whole thing was a sham. It was a ploy to get my name used in conversation with the film in order to support it. To me, this movie is the lowest form in life. I honestly believe that it celebrates heroin addiction. And then later he said, Worse, there's a slur implied in the movie that I was jealous of Nancy, which I find particularly loathsome. There is that implication that I feel was definitely put there. I guess that's Alex Cox showing his middle class twittery. It's all too glib. It's all too easy. So with Tony's opinion on this made crystal clear about, you know, accuracy and stuff, how much did the film actually get right. Well, depending on who you ask, the film is decently accurate for the most part and irresponsibly inaccurate in others. The biggest omissions are, for one, Sid and Nancy completely skips the foundation of the band, which I laid out earlier, which makes sense, of course, because Sid Vicious was only around towards the end of that, the life of that band. Instead, Cox introduces us to the Sex Pistols when they're already in full swing and set to embark on its one and only American tour in January 1978, a career move which in real life marked the very quickly approaching beginning of the end. The film also oversells Sid's influence in the band and their rise to controversial fame. Also, the performances in the film have been critiqued as not quite capturing the chaos of a Sex Pistols performance. The punk scene was also a far more diverse and complex subculture than is portrayed with a variety of political and artistic perspectives that are not depicted. During their first gig in the movie, Sid uses his bass to assault a critic who the film calls Dick Dent. In real life, Sid assaulted journalist Nick Kent at a gig at London's 100 Club, though according to Kent, he got whipped with a bicycle chain by Sid rather than a musical instrument. I don't know which is worse, frankly. I don't want to get hit by either. Sid and Nancy also portrays Johnny Rotten as being relatively indifferent from the drama surrounding Sid and Nancy's relationship. In reality, Johnny was a highly opinionated and confrontational individual who often clashed with his bandmates, and he was not as removed from the situation as the film depicts. They did make him way too passive in the film, like compared to like what I know about him and how he's portrayed. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with the with with Johnny Rotten on that one. They didn't they did him a little dirty. Sid and Nancy also compresses the timeline of events as well, making it feel like Sid and Nancy's relationship lasted only a few months. In the film, which starts like maybe two or three months before they go on tour in America, so like the fall of 1977, they have Sid and Nancy not even having met yet. In reality, they were together for 19 months until that fateful night at the Chelsea. The couple are also seen in the film as more toxically limerenced lovers, but in reality, people who knew them have stated that their relationship was more volatile and dysfunctional than any Anything else. Nancy is also portrayed in the film. This is probably where the irresponsibility kind of comes in from an incredibly misogynistic slant. 
She is mostly shown as an immature, manipulative, bemoaning child who throws temper tantrums every time she didn't get her way. While some people who knew Nancy describe her as being difficult and at times volatile and even violent, the film's portrayal of her is controversial and has been criticized for being overly sensationalized, particularly by her parents. Another major difference between the real-life Nancy and her on-screen counterpart is that the film portrays her as being obsessed with Sid Vicious and intoxicated by his fame. In reality, people who knew Nancy have come out and said that she was more interested in the punk scene as a whole and that she was not solely focused on Sid or his band. The film suggests that Nancy was responsible for Sid's descent into drug addiction, while in reality, it's unclear to what extent Nancy actually influenced Sid's drug dependencies. We do know he was already a heavy drug user before she entered the picture, so I think they were just two lost souls needing somebody to yes and their bad habits. Nancy Spungen was a deeply troubled woman who struggled with mental health issues, drug addiction, and a history of self-harm. And portraying her as a whiny, fame-chasing groupie is a gross oversimplification of what actually was reality. Some other little historical inaccuracies. When the Sex Pistols went out on their 11-day U.S. tour in the film, the scene kicks off with a helicopter flying in slow motion over a stretch of desert highway. They're hovering over a small convoy made up of a graffiti-covered tour bus, two large equipment trucks, as well as motorcycle gang members guarding them from the front and the back. While the Rolling Stones reportedly used this type of security, the Sex Pistols never did. So this is this was allegedly them going to their gig in Atlanta. And all of this, while visually striking, just didn't happen. The Sex Pistols arrived by plane to New York and flew to Atlanta for their first gig and flew to pretty much every gig after that. There was a road trip from Tulsa to San Francisco, but it was not as pomp and circumstancy as shown in the film. And not all of them chose to travel this way. Some still opted to fly. And then, of course, the film depicts Sid and Nancy's final moments. And in the film, it shows Sid, spoiler alert, actually killing Nancy. It is actually impossible to show that event accurately. So that was obviously made up for the film because no one knows what happened. Sid confessed to the crime, told several different versions of what happened, and then retracted everything he said. In subsequent years, it has been suggested that Spongen may have been murdered by someone else, which to me feels like denial on, you know, people who knew them's part more than anything else. With anything, I get, you know, they're protecting their loved ones. Well, the portrayals of the peripheral characters, which unfortunately includes members of the band, in less than accurate lights, the ending of the story is the same. Nancy ends up dead in a hotel room and Sid dies from either guilt or nihilistic pessimism caused by a drug overdose. Sid and Nancy may have been star-crossed lovers, but their story lives on as a cautionary tale. Punk rocks, Romeo and Juliet. This is my girlfriend, Nancy. <laughs> You like me, don't you? Sydney's more than a mere bass player. He's a fabulous disaster. Sid Vicious is the sex pistols. I couldn't live without you. I'm your best friend!
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I'm going to go make coffee after I'm done recording this because uh, I literally woke up about an hour before I started recording. I'm very excited for my coffee. I've also got merch. I just saw a couple of people bought merch this week. Uh, thank you so much. If you would like merch, you can check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we separate fact from fiction between The Runaways and the film of the same name. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. 